Good morning. morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to the book of Acts. We're studying the book of Acts. Today we'll be in Acts 8, 26 to 40. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Let's uh, turn to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for your inspired and errant word. We thank you that you have given it to us that we might know you, that we might know how to live, that we might know your will in our lives. We pray, Father, that as James warns, we would not be hearers of the word only, but in fact, doers as well. So take your word, Lord, gently apply it to our lives and transform us. Father, if I say things that are incorrect, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to ignore that, and that we want to be changed by truth that comes from you. Guide us this morning, we ask. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. The beltway around Washington, D.C. had slowed to a crawl. Cars were barely moving And the ambassador of Ethnia was in the back of his stretch limo. Since he had time on his hands, he began to read the Gideon Bible that he had lifted from his hotel room three days ago. His intent initially was just to get a little bit better at English. But as he began to read it, he couldn't put the thing down. He was mesmerized by it. But not only mesmerized, but quite frankly, he was perplexed. He was reading from Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. As a lamb is led to the slaughter, so he was led, yet he did not open his mouth. He wondered, is this talking about the prophet who's writing it? Is it talking about another? He just wasn't sure. Suddenly, he heard a voice from outside his limo. The traffic was moving so slow that a boy, a young man, was walking, and he was walking faster than the traffic, and he said, hey, do you know what you're reading? Well, not really. How can I understand it unless someone explains it to me? The young man said, I know it's a bit orthodox, unorthodox, but if you let me in, I'll explain it to you. That's awkward. So he told his driver to stop, let the young man in. And he began to explain that, no, this isn't Isaiah talking about Isaiah. This is Isaiah talking about the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And that by faith, you can believe that your sins were paid for when that Lamb went to the cross and died as a payment of our sin. And then conquered death and rose on the third day. That if we would confess our sin and believe in Christ, we would be given eternal life. And right there, right then, the ambassador of Ethnia believed in Jesus. They were both surprised to realize that they had left the beltway. The car was pulling off and they were going by the Washington Monument with a reflecting pool. And immediately the ambassador of Ethnia said, stop. And he got out and pulled the young man, whose name was Phil, by the way. He pulled Phil out with them and said, what's to keep me from being baptized? 
And Phil looked at the reflecting pool. It had algae on the bottom. He could see a sunken Coke can. It wasn't very clean. But after all, this was an opportunity to baptize a new believer. So he said, sure. And they got into the reflecting pool. And in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, this ambassador of Athnia was baptized. Now, by now, you know all I did was just retell the story, didn't I? I just brought it into the 21st century. But let me read it the inspired way, the way God wrote it. I want to pick up in Acts 8. I want to read verses 26 to 40. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, This is a desert place. And he arose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now as the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep before he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before his shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus. That would be ancient Ashdod. That's 29 miles north of this place, 29 miles north of the Gaza. It's one of the five Philistine, the sea people, one of their city-states. He's making his way up the Mediterranean. But Philip found himself at Aztos, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. That would be Caesarea Maritima, five miles north of Tel Aviv. Now let's set the scene. You remember back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, God said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And you remember that the apostles did nothing with that. But we have a layman, a garden variety believer like you and me. His name is Philip. He's one of the deacons of Acts 6. He oversees the the hoopa, the, the benevolent fund. He takes God at his word. He sees people as made in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, people valuable to God. And so he risks himself as a Jew and he goes to Samaria. 
You remember the Samaritans have nothing to do with Jews. Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. You remember Samaritans have rejected all but the first five books of Scripture. They have a different temple. They're looking for a different Messiah. And truly they hate Jews and Jews hate Samaritans. But Philip has gone to proclaim the gospel. And you remember from Acts chapter 8, 5 and 6, revival has broken out. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowd with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when he heard him and he saw the signs that he did. Ministry was going great. You can kind of picture what's happening We have revival in Samaria, a place where the gospel has not yet penetrated. Now it's penetrated. People are coming to Christ. The discussions they're having is, do we have enough chairs? Do we have enough parking spots? How are we going to accommodate the people who are coming to Christ? And suddenly, an angel of the Lord taps Philip on the shoulder and says, Hey man, you got to travel 90 miles on foot from Samaria down to Gaza because there's a place and a person in the middle of nowhere that God wants you to work with. Now, I don't know what went on in Philip's mind, but I might have been a little bit obstinate if I had been Philip. I might have said, well, you know what? You remember in Acts 1-8, we're to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. How about Peter, James, and John? They're still back in Jerusalem. They haven't left. I've got work to do. People are coming to Christ. The Spirit is moving. I think you got the wrong guy, but that's not what Philip does. Philip understands that to trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. And so he is going to do what God has called him to do. So he leaves this this budding revival and he goes and finds this man in the middle of nowhere. Perhaps he understands What Isaiah writes in Isaiah 55, 8, where God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways, says the Lord. And isn't that true? Christianity is not irrational, but sometimes God asks us to do things that we don't want to do. Sometimes God wants us to do his will, and we have a different will than that of God's, and what are we going to do? God's thoughts are not our thoughts and our ways are not that of the Lord. What if Philip had said no? Well, we actually know a lot more than Philip did at this point. Because of Irenaeus, a second century historian and apologist, we know what actually happens with this Ethiopian eunuch. We know he's going to go back and win the Candace. That is, he's going to win the, the queen to a saving knowledge of Christ. We know that the entire Coptic church and the Abyssinian church come out of this one man in the middle of nowhere, 90 miles away. His conversion leads to not only the queen coming to Christ, but two denominations to come out of it, which were for the first five or six centuries, very orthodox denominations. Less so today, but very much so in those first five, six hundred years. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. But what happens when God tells us to do that which we don't want to do? Maybe some here today are are trapped in a marriage that you're not really excited about. 
It hasn't been going well and it's been going downhill. You don't have biblical grounds for divorce, but you want out. And yet, because you don't have biblical grounds, you're going to stay and you're going to pray and you're going to work and you're going to invest because you know that the Lord hated divorce. Malachi chapter 2. And so you obey even though it's not the way you would choose. Or maybe you're single and you want to get married. And the only person you're interested in and who is interested in you is an unbeliever. But you know that God says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 7, 1, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever for what has Christ to do with Belial. And your will is one way and God's will is another. And you bend your will to God's will because you desire to trust and obey knowing that God sees the big picture and you only the small. Or what if you have friends that because of COVID-19 have gotten out of the habit of going to church and they recreate on Sunday mornings and don't come to church and, and they're inviting you on a regular basis. But you remember Hebrews 10, 25, do not forsake the assembly of the saints as some are in the habit of doing. And there's your will and there's God's will and you bend your will to God's. <coughs> or you're around people who use language in inappropriate ways. And you remember that scripture says, let no unwholesome word proceedeth from your mouth, but only that which builds up in Ephesians 4, 29. And you bend your will to that of God's. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. The Lord of hosts has told us that. And yet he's told us to obey. Philip obeys. So after traveling 90 miles, he comes in contact with a eunuch from Ethiopia. Now I've been to Ethiopia and the Ethiopia I've been to is not this place. Actually, this place is another place I've been. This is 120 miles northeast of Khartoum. This is Sudan. Now you can't be surprised by that because when we look at ancient maps and we compare them to modern maps, boundaries change, names change, locations change. And we're a couple thousand years. So actually where we are is Nubia, North Sudan, actually a very dangerous place in the world today. That's where this man is from. And he is part of Candace dynasty. It's a matriarchal, a matriarchal dynasty. There is a king. The king is called the king of the sun, S-U-N. And he's thought to be too godly, too holy. And it has nothing to do with faith in the one true God. But too holy to administer regular to his people. So in this particular matriarchal reign, the queen mother leads the country. And the queen mother always had a eunuch. This was someone who was highly educated, usually from a lower middle class family, who he or his family saw an opportunity for advancement, underwent a surgical procedure, so he's of no threat to women in the monarchy, and he's no threat to a future dynasty. This actually happened the world over, and a eunuch 
would become like the second or third most powerful person in the empire. And that's this guy. I think it's Ray Stevens who would say he had rubies and pearls just dripping off of him and a ring on every finger of his hand. This guy is rich. How do I know? Because he's in the chariot and he's reading while he's in the chariot. That means there's a chariot driver. He's in a stretch limo of his day. The average person walked. A rich person had a donkey. Whenever I'm reading the Christmas account to my Ray Ray, we have these little kid Bibles and I'll turn, there'll be a donkey. And she says, I know Popo, no donkey. There's no donkey for Joseph and Mary. There is no donkey. They are poor. They give the offering of a poor person. It's a rich person who has a donkey. It's a general who rides a horse. It's a tycoon who's on a chariot with a driver. This man is very wealthy. You can imagine that Philip might be intimidated. The differences between them are great, educational, socioeconomic, ethnic, skin color, political. They're different in every one of those areas. He could be intimidated. She, or he serves the queen, but Philip serves the king. So rather than be intimidated, he serves the same king we serve. He serves empowered by that king. There's an old mission song. I'm not going to sing it to you. It goes like this. We're on a missionary mission right here in VBS. We have a great commission to do our very best. In order to do our best for Jesus, we have to minimize our differences and maximize his lordship over everyone. That's the Acts 1-8 mandate. To see people as made in the Imago Dei and the image of God, desperately needing Christ and to share Christ with them. To look for evangelistic opportunities. In this regard, I think of a man named Roy Weiss. He was the chaplain at Missouri State. He's gone to be with the Lord in 2007. Every day when Roy Reese would wake up, he would do what some of you do. He would say, Lord, give me an opportunity to share the gospel. Bring someone in my path that I could tell about you. And Roy Reese would have this ability to take whatever the conversation is and then move it towards Jesus. Isn't that, by the way, what Philip does? Hey, what are you reading? Do you understand it? Can I explain it to you? And then from Isaiah 53, it says he unfolded the gospel all over scripture. Well, that's what Roy Weiss would do. He would walk through the commons and someone would say, hey, Pastor Reese, beautiful day. And he'd say, yeah, it is a beautiful day. There had to be a creator to create it, don't you think? And he would start wherever the conversation began and then he would naturally move it into a recognition, a declaration of Christ. You see, in order to share the gospel, you got to get to the gospel. When we're sharing with skeptics, sometimes they'll do anything to keep us from the gospel. They'll want to talk about an old earth, a new earth, the big bang, the creation. Was Jonah really swallowed by a fish? Does the Bible really line up with the 
the archaeology of the world, that's all great. Apologetics is good. It's pre-evangelism, but it's pre-evangelism. We have to get to the gospel. And Philip gets to the gospel. What's the gospel? It starts with the bad news. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. If we claim that we have no sin, we are liars and the truth is not in us. The wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus loved us to the point of dying on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that through him we might become the righteousness of God. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. For with the mouth one confesses and with the heart one believes and is saved. That's the gospel. I remember when uh, we were beginning to prepare the teens to go to London and the Dominican Republic. And we had a number of classes and uh, uh, Jared and Dan and Andrew would lead these classes. And I remember that Andrew mandated, he's like the Bible bouncer. He said, if you don't memorize the Romans road, you don't get to go. And I thought, whoa, that's a little harsh. Decaf tomorrow, buddy. But he meant it. And like the next time, like half the teens passed and like none of the adults passed. And he warned us again, you got till like the next time in two weeks to have all of these verses memorized. Romans 3.23 and Romans 5.1 and 6.23 and Romans 10.9 and 10. And if you don't have it memorized, you don't get to go. He's the Bible bouncer. Why? Because how can we go to another land if we can't share the gospel in our own land? And we can't share the gospel if we don't know what scripture says and we can't proclaim scripture to others. Philip is single-minded I don't think he gave graphs on famines and beasts and seals and trumpets and bowls. There might be a place for that, but he gave the gospel. We're sinners in need of a savior and Jesus is the only savior who has and will pay the penalty of our sin. And by faith, we need to receive him as savior and Lord. We share the gospel. Philip shared the gospel and the eunuch came to a saving knowledge of Christ and then he saw a body of water. We know that the body of water is Wadi El Hasi. <laughs> Do you know what a Wadi is? It's like it's carved out of the sand and the dirt with big piles of sand on either side and it's where the water during the rainy season comes. Now if you think of Israel Israel, all this up here is the Galilee of the Sea of Galilee, which is a fresh body of water. It's the largest freshwater body of water in the whole Middle East. It's the breadbasket of Europe, actually. A lot of European food comes from Israel. A lot of flowers in Europe come from Israel. And then you go down further and you get to Jerusalem. And then you go down further. And here's where you think, oh, that's what Israel looks like. No, it's actually just the bottom and it's sand all the way down to the Red Sea, all the way down to Egypt. Well, they're way down there by the Dead Sea, and there's a wadi, which means it's during the rainy season, like all three weeks of the rainy season. That's about all the rain they get down there. And 
all the water collects in these flash flood areas called wadis. They're a mixture of rainwater and dirt. Suddenly, the reflecting pool of the Washington Monument actually sounds kind of clean. And he has just accepted Christ, and he says, hey, what would keep me from going down into the water? Now, think about this for a moment. This is the second most powerful legislator of ancient Sudan. I don't think he's in like a Mountain Dew t-shirt and cutoffs. He's probably got flowing robes that are very expensive and he's got a long trip ahead of him and if he goes down in this muddy water and gets wet, he's got to wear this wet tunic all the way home. This is really inconvenient. It's really unpleasant and yet it's important. Why? Because Jesus did it as a model for us. Let me read out of Mark chapter 1, 9 and 10. It says this, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee up north and was baptized by John in the Jordan. That would be actually down by the Dead Sea. So we're about a 90 mile walk actually from Nazareth to the top of the Dead Sea where the Jordan used to, not presently, but used to flow into the Dead Sea. And when he came up out of the water, that is he's not sprinkled with Jordan water, He goes into the water, he comes out of the water, and immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. I can think of several things from the text. First, baptism is important enough that Jesus did it as a model for us and he had no sin. And second, the text will actually go on to say that all Judea will go down to John to be baptized. Now at this point... Jerusalem is a city of about a million. The surrounding area of Judea is about two million in total. All would be like two million, but let's just say 300,000 go down. Do you know what kind of trip we're talking? Jerusalem to where John is, is 20 miles each way. 40 miles round trip. Jerusalem is 2,600 feet above sea level. The Jordan flowing into the Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below sea level. So you're going down 20 miles, almost 4,000 vertical feet, and you're going up 20 miles, almost 4,000 vertical feet, in a dangerous desert just to be baptized. That's how important this was. In fact, it made part of the Great Commission of Matthew 28. Go ye therefore into all the world and baptize them or make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is obviously important. And baptism is immersion. It's from the Greek word baptizo. Outside of the Bible, it was used of, if you're on a ship and somebody goes overboard and goes down to Davy Jones' locker and we can't find the guy again, he's said to be baptized, baptizoed. He's not sprinkled. He's immersed. The word was used if you had a a white shirt and you wanted to put a dye on it, you would mix the dye in water and you'd take the white shirt and submerge it and then bring it back up. And the shirt was said in the textile industry to have been baptizoed. And that's what happened. This guy passes Wadi El Hasti and he says, what would prevent me from being baptized? Why would this be important? 
because it's a parable. It's a picture of what Jesus did for us. Paul gives us this picture in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. It says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You go down, baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Hopefully we don't hold you under this long. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So baptism is a living parable of Jesus dying, going into the grave, conquering death and rising again. It's a living parable that we, for the first time, knowing Christ, have broken the bondage of sin through Christ, empowered by his spirit, and we are raised as new creations in Christ. It's a picture of the gospel of what Jesus has done in our lives. In the New Testament, baptism is always concomitant with salvation. It goes hand in hand and follows. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches, 3,000 come to Christ, and what happens? They're baptized. In Acts chapter 8, in our text, we have this Ethiopian eunuch. He comes to Christ, and what happens? He's baptized. In Acts chapter 16, Lydia and her household from Philippi come to Christ. What happens next? They're baptized. Later on in Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer, it's past midnight. He comes to Christ, and he is baptized. Baptism is concomitant with faith. Faith first, followed by baptism, the living parable of what Jesus has done with us. And it's actually part of the Great Commission. It's part of making disciples. But we live in the 21st century, and we've separated them quite significantly. And so believers come to Christ, and if they're not baptized as a child, they become a teen, and then it becomes a little bit more awkward, and then they've raised themselves, or they, they've been raised in the church in their 20s and 30s. They still have been baptized, and I baptize them by the time you guys are in tradition service. That's when they get baptized. That's not the New Testament picture. The New Testament picture is we believe in Christ, and we're baptized. So maybe... Maybe some of you have believed in Christ. Maybe this morning, maybe last week, maybe 20 years ago or 40 years ago. But you have not made a public declaration that you belong to Christ. Well, we have a class that just so happens it's this Thursday. It's at the Wassa campus at 6.30. You just have to call the church and tell us you're coming. And then we have a baptismal service uh, next Sunday in Wassa and Marathon and in Merrill, the following Sunday in Weston. So there's opportunities to be baptized on one of two different Sundays at four different campuses. Maybe you would follow the Lord in baptism. Well, let me conclude the text. A few thoughts. First, truly God is right. He always is. When he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, your ways are not my ways, says the Lord of hosts. He makes that declaration to say, sometimes we don't see the beginning from the end and obedience is trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. 
And it may be that today you've been thinking, God says this, you want to do that. But you're going to trust and obey. Philip did that. It was seemingly illogical to leave a revival in Samaria where people who are unreached are coming to Christ to go 90 miles by feet or by, by foot and then to, to meet this ambassador and from him the queen of Nubia comes to Christ and from him the Coptic church and the Abyssinian church comes to Christ. When we obey God, he does remarkable things. Second, God's called us, he's commissioned us to share the gospel with others. But the gospel requires the gospel. It's not enough to talk about a creator. It's not enough to talk about old earth or new earth or beasts or bulls or trumpets. We got to get to the gospel. We're sinners in need of a savior. There's one savior, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross, died covered with our sin, paid the penalty of sin, conquered death, rose again, that if by faith we would believe in him, receive him as savior and Lord, we would be given eternal life. And we have that great commission to share with others, maybe even to bring to church where they'll hear the gospel. And finally, having believed in Christ, we make a public declaration of our faith by being baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for the book of Acts that we have been looking at now for a number of months and all the lessons that you Continue to teach us out of your inspired and errant word. And Father, we don't want to be just hearers of the word, but doers as well. So help us to do the word, obey the word, to live the word for our betterment and your great glory. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.